0: Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk Wobert. John is very sick, unfortunately, and uh, not able to join us today. We had um, quite a few good topics planned, but uh, we all wish John the best in recovering very soon. So um, you've got me flying solo. Um, I did want to talk about a couple of big things that are going on. Uh, If you follow the news on this kind of thing, you'd probably know that uh, there's been a big push to change some of the rules, anyway, that relate to how bail or bond is determined in a case where someone's accused of something, and uh, the person's released on certain conditions. Now, if you're a regular listener of the show, you know that there's been I've talked many times about a trend towards an ever-increasing uh, amount of cash money that needs to be uh, come into play in these types of situations. But there is a bill that has, um, we've seen a couple of different versions of it coming into our state legislature, and the latest version does call for judges to consider a variety of things, new things, that were not previously statutorily directing the judge to do things. Now, you probably already know my opinion on when the legislature tries to tell judges what they can or can't do in a vacuum or in a hypothetical world. And this is a bit more complicated than that, because the legislators that are behind this push are citing numerous examples, a few examples of cases where somebody was let out on bond, they were able to post the cash, got out of custody for some offense, and then while out of custody, committed uh, a very serious offense. And we have seen a few examples. I believe there was even one recently in Sheboygan where that occurred. But of course, there's the case down in Waukesha involving the driver that uh, drove through the the holiday parade and killed several people. Now, you know, this is part of the problem when we try and uh, tinker with the justice system in such a way that we uh, cite a singular example or an isolated set of circumstances and view them, those particular things, as the reason why Something needs to change because the those few examples end up swallowing up the entire philosophy behind everything else. But it should be obvious. But let me just point out that anyone who is facing this bail determination um, in front of a judge is presumed innocent and has not been convicted of anything. And we've put so many safeguards into our system to prevent the possibility, or I guess I would say likelihood, of somebody having to remain in custody on allegations before they get an opportunity to really challenge the evidence. So by definition, we're talking about a situation where somebody is not yet at the very beginning of that process. And then it comes down to how much money is appropriate to require that person to deposit before they can be released. Now, prior to these series of events where you see you know, examples that people point to as to why was it that somebody was allowed to post such a low amount, got out, and then did something terrible. And one of the problems with that supposition is that if a judge had required more money That person would have remained in custody because they wouldn't be able to post it. That's a problem when you think about if the goal is to keep somebody incarcerated on allegations and do a little bit of retro Monday morning quarterbacking about, gee, if this person had a million dollar bond, they wouldn't have been able to get out and they wouldn't have been able to commit this additional crime. You know, you're kind of going backwards in time and using what you know happened after the event to judge what should have happened differently. But again, this is all on the supposition that somebody uh, should not have gotten out of custody. Because is there really a difference in the analysis if, let's say, someone's allowed out on $1,500? And they post it and they get out and they do something bad. Well, what if it was a million dollars and they posted it and they got out and they did something bad? I mean, that's not really the way that this is the analysis should work. I mean, there are much bigger problems in our society and with our processes that, you know, and many, many, many of them that contribute to, you know, that singular or isolated set of cases where those types of things happen. And for every one of these, and again, it's a handful that we can point to where somebody got out and did something bad. Um, You can point to thousands of cases where somebody did what the judge asked and then nothing happened. In fact, that's 99.99% of the time. Someone complies with those conditions on bond. They post their bail And then they make their court appearances and everything's fine. Um, But the role of the judge or the court commissioner in some cases, because some counties utilize court commissioners to set bond, Sheboygan's one of them, um, where the goal should be to find a way to combine the perceived need to protect the public, which is legit, but also find a way for this person to not have to be in custody. So when somebody has a tremendously high bond and they remain in custody because they can't post it, you know, there's virtually a presumption that that person um, should have a lower bond. But the problem is we tie this all to money, dollars and cents. And as we've said many times before, the process by which a judge has to make that determination is a is a distillation of some some very basic facts that don't necessarily reflect a person's true ability to you know not be in custody pending trial it's in our constitution it's in our wisconsin constitution that the default position so to speak when someone's accused of a crime is that they will be released and that they will not be required to post any cash. Then over the years, we've added these various layers of considerations that have driven up the amount of cash that's typically required. And again, we used to call this bail reform. I mean, as recently as, you know, a year ago, bail reform meant, that term meant efforts to try and find ways where it's not all about the cash. Well, now that term has been co-opted into this new effort to try and make sure that would be violent criminals remain behind bars while their case is pending. And when you make these kinds of sweeping policy determinations, two things go wrong very quickly when our lawmakers start trying to adjust things in such a way that, frankly, they're trying to gain some political popularity, but also envisioning the myriad of circumstances that a judge would have to deal with in these situations. You, you can't contemplate all that. So when we start removing discretion, we start taking decisions away from judges who would have to deal with something right there on the spot and start dictating what they should or shouldn't do, um, that turns into bad policy. And frankly, you know, it is the first step towards a, an unfair system where people perceive the system to be unfair. And it all depends on where you sit in this process. Our country has a long, like every country, has a long history of many, many, many examples of people being wrongly accused of something, They just didn't do. And our system has to continue to account for that because the imperfections that are part of our system, the fact that there's competing interests, we would love to have a system whereby every misdeed and every crime that's ever committed is accurately and um, with with an unbiased heart detected and investigated and unbiased evidence is produced which is rock solid and those who commit wrongs are appropriately punished and those who did not commit the crime are not i mean that would be it's a lofty goal because it's very hard to accomplish those things with all of the imperfections in the system so we do have to take a break right now but we'll be back in just a bit stay tuned So if you're an American citizen and you're listening to this show from Ukraine, um, I hope you can get out of there pretty quickly. Um, Whether you are uh, working for a diplomatic agency, such as the state department, or if you just happen to be there, um, get out, (laughs) it's not safe. And it's becoming very, very worrisome. From my perspective, I just want to talk very, very briefly, um, and we'll get back into some of the other topics we have planned for today. But uh, you know that earlier this week, Russia had been conducting uh, very, uh, I guess, one word that's been described, massive military exercises in Belarus. Belarus is is an independent nation, but a very close ally of the current. Russian regime and of course going back to when the Soviet Union existed that was all part of you know the Soviet bloc now at the same time you know there is a a region in eastern Ukraine which is still part of the territory the territorial integrity of the boundaries of the country of Ukraine that is being held by Russian sympathizers and as we also know, in 2014, eight years ago, um, Russia annexed is a polite way of putting it the Crimean Peninsula. So that when when we have these situations, and uh, if you study mili- military history to any extent, you should understand the significance of these quote unquote military exercises, because every country theoretically, has the right to prepare for and train, and, and that's a good thing. You know, we ourselves, uh, in the United States, we're constantly training and constantly testing our weapons and constantly going through different scenarios. I mean, you've heard the term war games. That's what that means. And when I was in the Air Force, that was, you know, a very, very regular occurrence is that you go through what we call exercises, and an exercise is when you... Um, pretend, (laughs) or go through the motions of all the actual logistic carrying out of plans. Now, when it's done very close to the borders of another country, the concern is that what may uh, one day be uh, a military exercise to train people could very easily turn into uh, an invasion of a foreign territory. And it's again, it's designed to flex your muscles. But, you know, given how military philosophy works, and and trust me, I think this is a good thing, the idea behind uh, having an open display of your capabilities is supposed to be a deterrent. And that's one reason why, you know, the United States conducts... um, Various exercises with uh, NATO allies and and others that uh, to dem- so that people can observe and see that this stuff works, you know. It's one thing to say we've got a bunch of weapons that should we need to use them for the first time uh, down the road that we hope they will work, but you know, actually engaging in and utilizing and and going through the actual motions of the the physical activity of what's involved and to work out all the very, very complicated things that happen in those matters, you know, really is essential to effectively utilizing a military force as a defensive measure. It's it's absolutely critical. So on the one hand, there should be nothing wrong with... um, any any military, legit military, as part of a recognized country carrying out um, military, ex- as I say recognized country, because, um, you know, I talked about this last week. There's this, there are certain protections that are afforded anyone who's a regular military uh, member, you know, someone who's a combatant, as on behalf of a nation. Um, are allowed to do certain things. If you're not doing that, well, that means that's where the word terrorism comes from. Terrorists, you know, that engage in unsponsored activities, uh, or at least in some situations where it's not easily identifiable who is sponsoring it. Right. So this is the problem. You know, a military exercise could be done anywhere within the massive uh, territorial borders of russia which is you know land size just huge gigantic there are some limited opportunities to utilize you know seaports and and so forth because of um the geographic limitations that russia has but at the same time um this is nothing less under these circumstances nothing less than a show of force and taunting um in this particular situation so if you were watching the news, I think it was on Thursday, President Biden warned all U.S. citizens that are you know, within Ukraine and probably uh, in that area to get out because this is a very volatile situation and one wrong move by any number of a variety of players here could result in a very, very serious conflict that occurs. Um... Anyway, I just, I threw that out there because um, I was just aware that this whole exercise thing was going on and to explain that um, it's something that we should keep a close eye on. And I know people are, I'm just commenting on it, right? Back to our bail problem that we're seeing here in Wisconsin. I told you before that going back for years, we've uh, been attempting to uh, stay true to our constitutional principle, that when one is accused of a crime, that they basically enjoy all of the presumptions of regularity. That you know their life, just because they're accused of something, which could be completely false, it could be misplaced, it could be exaggerated, it could be that someone just got it plain old wrong, um, and a person's freedom. To do the things that we as Americans value, which is, you know, the good wholesome stuff. Go to your job, be with your family, take your kids to the soccer game. Um, A person's ability to do what they wish um, with their own self-determination is a very high priority in our um, freedoms that we want to protect. And that needs to remain in place when someone is is facing a crime. So what what this bill is proposing is that it's tinkering with some of the language to make it so judges um, have to consider the nature of what the current offense is, a past of dangerousness, whether the person has uh, displayed any propensity for violence and things like that which is all probably appropriate and has been considered before. But what happens when the legislature puts this stuff into a statute is that it gives the prosecution ammunition to point to a law and come up with yet further reasons why uh, someone needs to remain in custody. Now, you might ask, what else does a prosecutor gain by having a defendant in custody other than being under the auspices of protecting the public. Because again, that's all completely speculative. We need to, this 55-year-old person who never did a thing wrong before in their life is now accused of this very terrible thing, and now we need to protect the public. Today, not yesterday, because there was no reason to, but now we do. Basically flipping the entire situation on its head And in some ways, what we see prosecutors do, it's almost a threat or an intimidation tactic against the judge to convince the judge that, judge, if you get this wrong and you let this person out and they do something bad, it's going to be on you. And we prosecutors asked you to put, you know, require a very high bond so that it won't be on us. So all this fear of what in the vast majority of cases doesn't happen is what is driving this rule. Um, and I get it because, you know, we've seen the DA in Milwaukee being blamed for the decision uh, by one of the assistant district attorneys, who, by the way, as I understand that, was overwhelmed with the. Um, a typical day in court and had limited information to go on and didn't have a crystal ball. So, you know, asking a DA to step down because they couldn't read the future, you know, is part of the problem here because in that particular situation, you know, that, that's political pressure, that's public pressure to say, hey, if you aren't as draconian as some people in the public think you should be, without knowing all the facts and without understanding the the detailed circumstances as to how these things arise, you know, you need a scapegoat, right? Time for a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You know, if there were a way that we could somehow, as I said before, read the future, have a crystal ball and figure out what people are uh, going to do when they're released from custody pending any kind of charge. Um, we would probably see a lot less crime. We would be able to control things in such a way that we would all achieve that ultimate goal of living in a safe and free society without unduly burdening uh, the individual lives of people. And don't get me wrong, of course, when uh, someone truly does demonstrate a propensity for being unable or unwilling To follow the law, in a general sense, we're really left with no choice other than to get that person's attention, and sometimes money's the only way. It's imperfect, and and I don't think it should be that way, but we're left with few options when somebody is really just not getting it and not conforming to um, our standards of society. And it's interesting because on the one hand, you know, my view of our legal system being an insider, so to speak, for many years has been uh, my role is to protect the integrity of the process and to make sure that it doesn't go out of bounds. I mean, that's why we have the Sixth Amendment in our Constitution, in our Bill of Rights, that someone has uh, has the assistance of counsel and that it's not the government um making decisions that affect people's lives under the auspices this is auspices that's hard to say um, of a an organized legal system. And to achieve that balance, what it really means and this goes all the way back to when we drafted the sixth amendment and before the the very notion that it is so imprecise and so imperfect as part of what we do. I mean, there are so many movies, television series, and and books written about where the justice system goes wrong. And I know John hates it when I say the criminal justice system because it's almost like an oxymoron. Uh, Jumbo shrimp, you know, criminal justice. Well, you know, it's a, a lot of the laws are aimed towards trying to micromanage aspects of our society that are probably never achievable. So we're in a constant state of failing, is what it really comes down to. Uh, we're trying to achieve this perfection that will never be had, and again, I always harp on the politicians, but I'm going to do it again. Those that wish to pretend they can come up with a simple answer to a complex problem really just make it that much more complex in the process of doing that, and If you ever thought that the job of a judge is easy or that judges enjoy a certain amount of, you know, luxury in the process of what they do, you're dead wrong. Because judges um, are put in very difficult positions every single day on these issues because someone who aspires to that position, very difficult job, by the way, um, would hope to. Uh, administer justice in an even, fair way, you know, to, to make this uh, community that we live in a better place, to maintain the integrity of, of our lifestyles, right? I mean, that's all part of being in a free society. But the way that things, the mechanics of it, end up working is that it turns into a fairly draconian process where things are somewhat arbitrarily presented. Um, And, and, you know, some people will blame a defense lawyer for, hey, you made an argument to get this person out on bond, and then when they did get out, they went out and did something terrible. Why did you do that? Well, it's, it's all in the context of an adversarial system. And, you know, make no mistake, when someone's in court and they're accused of anything, it is an adversarial process. The, the state, the prosecution, is, by definition, pushing as hard as they can to get as harsh of a outcome as they can justify. The defense is pushing back against that, and the judge is supposed to be the referee in the middle of all that. And, you know, that's pr- very primitive when you think about it. It's almost like, you know, uh, the Roman games where someone gets thrown into the arena and has to battle a lion or something um but we just we're we're pretty much incapable of finding a better way of doing things because of all the human elements it always always worries me that um the outcome of any particular case and the future uh, from both sides from you know the victim of a crime or the alleged perpetrator of a crime, whatever perspective you take on this, there is this tremendous risk that you might not get it right. And by pushing so hard on each side, it's like a tug of war. And we just have faith that somehow the outcome is one that we can rely on. Um, So when we're injecting into this further complications, further disruptions in the process of, of what we do at steps along the way, it's putting that much more of a burden on a judge to have to, to, to make the right decision. And it's just really untenable that in the span of about 30 seconds to 60 seconds, a judge can can make those types of decisions. Now, you know, I, I do have a lot of familiarity with the way things work in other um, jurisdictions and i I always like to compare things to the federal system because the federal system applies throughout the country and we of course have two federal districts um, in our state the western district of wisconsin and the eastern district of wisconsin so if you kind of divide the state right down the middle uh, madison North and everything to the west is in the western district and Milwaukee going up and down the the eastern lakeshore region all the way up to Michigan that's uh, the eastern district and in federal court the way that they take care of it this issue is is perhaps a little better but it still has its imperfections in federal court there is a lot of effort put into Making a recommendation as to what the conditions of release should be for a person. And there's many factors that go into this. One of them that can actually be somewhat uh, of a hurdle for all parties involved is that if someone's charged with an offense that carries a mandatory minimum past a certain point, it depends on whether it's a drug case or some other kind of case, there's a presumption of detention. And it's kind of a bright line rule, but even then, there are exceptions built into that where if a judge believes that in spite of that presumption of detention, the person can be safely monitored while the case is pending, a judge will and should make every effort to consider those things. But the the, the big difference here is that uh, an employee, a, a person that is uh, part of the United States probation and parole department um, gathers a lot of information about a person. They submit a report some call it a bond study or a a pretrial detention recommendation and this is from somebody who's not um, working for the prosecution or the defense but really just working for the judge to to deliver to the court some objective uh, information that wasn't influenced one way or the other by either side, and to give as much detailed information as possible about the person. And this is a process that takes, you know, quite a bit of time to prepare. It's carefully put together and submitted to usually a magistrate judge for a decision about whether someone should remain detained or not with the mind's eye towards not having the person detained if there isn't one of these statutory mechanisms that makes a presumption of detention exist. So in those circumstances, uh, very, very different from the state system where someone's arrested, put in custody, makes an appearance, um, the prosecutor's drafted a criminal complaint, and then both sides are there arguing with the judge based on very limited information. And nine times out of ten, especially if it's someone that. Um, didn't have the funds to go out and immediately hire a private lawyer. They're meeting with a public defender, and God bless them, they do their very best to learn what they can about an accused person prior to this bond hearing. But, you know, the reality is that that is a conversation that, in the best case scenario, can last several minutes um, just because of. The workload involved. We're going to have to take a break, but we'll continue the discussion when we come back right after this. Back to the very difficult task of a a judge or magistrate making a determination as to what kinds of conditions, including where the cash should be posted, um, and what combination of those things should be determined in order to allow a person to be released. Uh, and I was comparing the federal system to our state system, and you know, in federal court, it's very, very rare that someone ever has to post some cash. It can happen, um, uh, or posting of collateral or anything like that. And it tends to go one way or the other. A person can be adequately supervised, or they just simply can't. And in in some ways, it is a better system in the in the federal jurisdictions because. And this just comes down to money again. uh, In that scenario, our taxpayer dollars are going towards providing services that are very extensive when it comes to monitoring a person. And, And frankly, one of the good things that happens in that scenario is that a judge can attach all manner of conditions that are designed to Yes, protect the public, but also get the person some, you know, proactive, preemptive help. It could be substance abuse treatment. It could be mental health treatment. It could be medical treatment. It could be any number of things that the judge or magistrate has the ability to put into place so that you're simultaneously protecting the public and helping the person. And... You know, that's really where we should be on a broader level. Of course, that would require much more funding, a much more robust uh, system when it comes to the personnel involved, if we were to hope to achieve that. Um, But to have, instead of that, what we do is we, you know, our state legislators are attempting to give prosecutors more ammunition when it comes to strengthening their cash bond arguments. So I've said my piece on that. I'm sure I'll say more about it, but I do need to transition into another topic. And, and this is another one of those areas that you know I frequently hit on, but I do want to do my part to talk about uh, how drunk driving laws can affect people. And you might think to yourself, well, I'll never be in that situation. And unless you don't drink any alcohol at all, ever, um, and you don't intend to, ever, um, it is something that you just need to be aware of. And, and I'll just take a step back, because um, it always fascinates me that this area of drunk driving, which is a, it's a terrible thing, absolutely, no doubt about it, I mean, should not be happening in our society. But there's a, a nuance of it. It's, these laws are different from virtually any other kind of thing that we criminalize in our society. And what I mean by that is that the reason why uh, getting behind the wheel when you've had too much to drink is forbidden by law is that the person doesn't have the good judgment and steady hand necessary to, to safely operate this machine that could kill people, right? No argument there. That's that's why we have this law. Yet, we, we punish people because of the very fact that they didn't have the good judgment not to drive. So we're saying, you don't have good judgment to drive, therefore it's illegal if you do. And the reason why you did it is because you didn't have good judgment. So it's kind of like a thing in and of itself. But you know, this has always been a problem in this area, is that how do you reduce the um, the um, incidence of drunk driving and fatalities and other things? And, and first, let me just point out, this should be obvious, but those are two different things. Getting behind the wheel and making it home safely is, is a relatively minor offense in Wisconsin, even if it's a second or third offense. There is some jail involved, etc., etc. you know, probation can be a thing if it's not a first offense, there can be an ignition interlock device if the person's found guilty, et cetera. But if someone gets hurt or dies, it's a completely different animal. And then again, it's consequence driven. So on the one hand, we warn people that even a first offense could be a disaster. We don't treat it like a disaster unless the disaster happens. Is there a better way to do it? I don't know. But the point is that it's just this odd cons- concept within the law that we we are not addressing the actual problem because we continue to pretend that the problem is the driving and not the drinking. And is it really... Anyone's uh, fault other than the fact that our society hasn't targeted that. Now, I'm not saying that we should go into an era of prohibition again where people don't drink, but there should be an emphasis on whether or not that is, you know, a productive thing and if it's appropriate for that individual if they are being arrested for making that improper decision. But here's the point in Wisconsin, We are the only state that treats a first offense as non-criminal. And I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. But what I'm saying is that we don't have what virtually every other state in our country does have, which is while you've got this person's attention, while there is the risk of this person being, frankly, a threat to the community's safety, what can you do and how can you incentivize this person to take a second look or a third look at their own behavior and to take steps to make sure those things don't happen again? Still, everyone focuses on the driving. Oh, drink all you want, just don't drive. But if, if, again, if we're having this presumption that the reason you can't drive is that you don't have good judgment, so we're gonna punish you by exercising that judgment in the way that we know that you're going to exercise it, which is poor. Mhm. So we're lacking um basically the social infrastructure here to deal with the issue. And it goes beyond just how we influence behavior. Um it's still just mind-boggling to me that we live in a modern society where we can uh we're closer than ever to being able to cure things like cancer and um, all the efforts that we put into bettering our society, the c- computers, the Internet, you know, automation of, of practically your refrigerator uh, is hooked up to the Internet. I mean, we have a massive amount of technological know-how. One of the great things about our country is that innovation can turn into um, business success. Yet, we still have the situation where people get from point A to point B by getting behind uh, the wheel of a machine that is directed by a gas pedal, a brake pedal, and a steering wheel. Uh, And you can drive into a building, through a cornfield, into a lake, or into a crowd of people if you choose, or, or if it happens that way. Isn't that weird? I mean... That's one of the problems that we have is that we just have not been able to develop. In fact, for, you know, decades and decades and decades, we have gone further and further away from safe public transportation. I mean, if you are familiar with the history of um, the eastern shores of Wisconsin, you probably know that there was an intricate and well-functioning uh, train system where you could get from Milwaukee to Sheboygan to Sheboygan Falls to Plymouth and and beyond, and it was a way that people got around. Um, and our government helped fund those types of things. Of course, that's all gone by the wayside because naturally the automobile industry and the assumption that every human being that lives in our country needs to have that autonomy of travel by being able to get in a vehicle and go somewhere, wherever you want. Um, Those are competing interests. And you you talk to some people about, hey, what if we were to reinvest in our public transportation infrastructure? Sometimes the reaction you get is that people are not comfortable with the idea of being on a train, for example or a bus, or whatever. Whatever that looks like. It has, we've we've evolved into this preference to not be around other people if we're going from point A to point B. Right? I mean, why is train travel so rare now? I mean, it's, it's we've basically taken away what used to be a very solid infrastructure to get people from one place to another. Well, we're out of time unfortunately, but Hope you enjoy the show. You can tune in next Saturday as you can every single Saturday from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock right here on 1330 AM and 101.5 FM WHPL. This has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.